And after marking song number 380, if you would, be turning to the ninth chapter of the gospel according to Luke. This morning, as we reflect upon that section of the Word of God, we'll be giving attention to the transfiguration of Jesus, which is the title I chose for the lesson today. Our reflection on the transfiguration, I hope, will be moving and motivating and encouraging and a reminder to you and me about the features and aspects of this part of the work of our Lord. This opening slide will be just a gentle introduction, reminding us that this particular event in the life of our Lord is recorded in some detail three distinct times in the New Testament. In Matthew, the 17th chapter, in Mark, the 9th chapter, and in Luke, the 9th chapter as well. Although we shall find some pieces of information in each one of them, our primary focus, to some degree at least, will be on that Luke passage today. It is with that in mind I'd like to begin reading in Luke the ninth chapter, verse 28, and we will then reflect upon as we listen to this event in the life of Jesus. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close, and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. That reading from Luke, the ninth chapter, verses 28 to 36, sets before us Luke's accounting of that remarkable transfiguration of Jesus. I've chosen to divide the lesson in such a way that we could develop it as this. Why don't we first reflect more carefully upon the text itself, rehearsing in our mind the actual sequence of events, and following that, we then will seek to apply several lessons, observations, if you will, in which we each can have our particular faith encouraged by the developments of this particular time. On that slide before you, could I point out some of the things earlier in the ninth chapter of Luke? Seems as if they might have a bearing, at least interestingly, upon the features of these events. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus had informed the apostles of what was going to happen to him at Jerusalem. You might keep in mind that the gospel according to Luke has a rather unique section. From at least a portion of Luke chapter 9 all the way to Luke 18, those events are not recorded really to any degree in any of the other gospel accounts. And by that I mean Luke casts an almost powerful spotlight on it. It's that scene of events that lead right up to His crucifixion. And yet in the midst of it, you'll notice He had already told them in Luke 9, 22, this is what's going to happen to me, the place where I'm headed. 
when I get there, the Gentiles, at least prompted by others, you appreciate that they're going to take my life. The next point on that slide is this one. During this same time, Matthew gives us some information that he did speak about the kingdom, the characteristic features of it, what it's going to be like, the sweetness and power of that which you and I would call the church. Is it any wonder in all of that that Luke 9 verse 23 pointed out the great demands that would involve following the Master? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And that message was just as powerful and penetrating then as it is now. Typically, we don't like to deny ourselves. We don't like to put others ahead of ourselves. And we sure don't like to put our own preferences low on the priority list. And yet the Lord said when it comes to seeking and serving Him, one must deny oneself. Take up the cross daily and follow me. But following that, we begin to appreciate this. Of just a very few days after this discussion, a very few days after this conversation, Jesus took Peter and James and John and went up into a mountain. And the text says He went there to pray. We often have an interesting observation on the prayer life of our Lord. In Mark 1.35, He went out to a solitary place a long while before daybreak, and there He prayed. We notice in Luke chapter 6, he prayed earnestly at the moment that the twelve apostles were selected. We can at least in those considerations make observation, Jesus was frequently and oft given to prayer, not only in the times of major decision, but also in those times connected to the other events of life. Isn't that at least one encouragement for you and me to be people of prayer? If the Son of God found it in needful, as perfect as he was to pray, then what about you and me? What about us who are so much more given to failure and fault and wrong decisions? How much more ought we to find power in prayer? I've asked you to notice on that slide that as he went there to pray, we noticed that something amazing happened. His countenance changed. Luke uses the word altered. On the slide, it says his clothing became the whitest of white. Brilliantly so. Could I offer it like this? No detergent upon earth could have made it as white as it appeared there under the consideration of the power of God that made it so. But not only that, there's a word glistering that Luke chooses to use. Luke 9 verse 29. His face shone like the sun, the text tells us. You may ask what that word glistering means. That's likely a word we don't use all that often, at least in English. On the slide, I've invited you to note the definition. It means to flash like lightning. Each of us have no doubt been in the presence to witness lightning, a lightning strike at some distance from us, and we've been impressed with how bright it appears. We've been impressed with the nature and the consideration of it, and yet that's the kind of idea that appears to go with this word before us today. But that is it all. At this point, if you can imagine the surprise that must have been the case for anyone blessed to see this, and yet the apostles were asleep. Sometimes we miss a lot when we sleep, don't we? 
Sometimes when it comes to applications, we find that it's not a good idea to be slumbering and sleeping. Speaking about those that appeared to our Lord, verse number 30 put it in language like this, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Moses, that great lawgiver, of whom much is said in the opening books of the Old Testament. And Elijah, that powerful prophet of the Lord spoken of so often in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We find that they appeared and had conversation with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to be apprised of everything that was said in that conversation? Wouldn't you like to know everything that was said? We are told some... We're told enough to satisfy our longing, but wouldn't you like to have the full conversation? We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. As you close that slide with me, did you note this? It says that they appeared in glory. This was a glorified moment. This next slide is one that carries forward that appreciation a little bit further to make these observations. You and I just made note that Moses and Elijah appeared. Could I point out by way of emphasis, these two were still alive. Not on earth, mind you, but they were still alive. Although Moses had been dead 1,500 years, although Elijah had been dead approximately 850 years, these two were still alive. They appeared in conversation with Jesus. You and I know as a part of the Christian faith that that time of demise on this earth is not the end. The day of our funeral is not the end. We look forward to a whole lot better than that. And yet, here were these two who appeared in glory, having conversation with Jesus. It must have been something to behold. I might point out as you look forward on that slide, this is all that we're told about what they talked about. Don't you find it impressive? The text says that they spoke with the Lord about His decease. His decease. On the slide, I've asked you to think somewhat about that. What does the word decease mean in a context like this? You might note it's not decrease, it's decease. Well, literally, the original word appears to have the following connection. It to go out of Exodus, or in fact... It would appear to be a reference to His coming death. Remember that that was sim similarly the main issue behind this unique section in Luke. Because upon His arrival at Jerusalem, He's put to death. It's a highlighted emphasis. It draws our attention, if you will, to the greatness of that word, the glory attached to it, and that which surrounded the Lord's choices in His movement toward that end. His decease. As all of this has reference, it would seem to that. You and I now come to verse number 32. It says, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. If there's ever a time, I would think, when one would wish to kick oneself for sleeping, surely that would have been it. Can you imagine them waking up, having missed some of what took place, only now to find Moses and Elijah in conversation with the Lord? Don't you suppose Peter especially would often wish he'd stayed awake to see the whole thing? 
Doesn't it remind us, among other things, that as Moses and Elijah were departing, Peter apparently in the moment before he made this suggestion. Let's build three tabernacles, three tents, three dwelling locations, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And yet in that connection, in that light, there's one final thing that you might observe in verse number 33. The text says Peter didn't know what he said. It would seem he was struggling to find the right thing to say, and it didn't really come to him so, so easily. And so this is what he said. Do you suppose he later regretted it? Based on the voice out of heaven, I have to think so. But at the very least, you then close that slide with me like this. A cloud overshadowed this scene. And not only overshadowed it, but there came a moment wherein they found themselves in the cloud. It descended to the very point of earth. And the text says they became fearful as they entered the cloud. One last thing. A voice was heard. This is my beloved son. Hear him. It's not the time, you see, to hear Moses anymore. It isn't the time to hear Elijah anymore. That law of Moses had its day and its dispensation, but now it's time to hear this one, the son, my son, the only begotten son of the Father. And the day of Elijah, as noteworthy as it was, and what a powerful defender of the truth of God that he was in the days of Jezebel and Ahab. But the time to hear Elijah is over. The time is now to hear the Christ. This scene of glorification for the cause of Christ and His person and that which was His mission was an overwhelming one. And it brings to our thought, Several lessons and observations. Let's start looking at some of them. I chose to include a picture. I suppose it really doesn't do a lot of justice to the glistening character and the glistering character of the Lord's appearance. But you can here see the, some artist's rendition of Moses and Elijah standing immediately on the left and right of the Lord, and then Peter, James, and John looking onward in some way. However you wish to try to visualize that, it might be a good thing for each of us to attempt it. But with that, let us look at a few observations. As you and I then apply these matters to ourselves, could we start with this one? I've entitled it Preparation and Purpose. The Transfiguration might well be highlighted as a time of preparation, so much so that the moment was a glorification of Jesus. You might remember that at the scene of the Lord's baptism, which was sometime earlier than this, that there had been a voice appearing from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this time, very similar words, but these are added. Hear ye Him. This was a reminder not only to those apostles, but no doubt a reaffirmation to the Christ about the nature of God's pleasing consideration of His work, and what he was going to accomplish for the entirety of those that would be pleasing unto God. That word glory has appeared in our text today. Not only could I invite you to consider that, Jesus is worthy of honor. The only perfect one who ever has lived. As he walked the face of this planet, 
He faced every temptation that you and I do, and yet He did so sinlessly. On the slide, I drew to your attention the following consideration. When we speak about the worthiness of the Lord, it might be an interesting consideration to reflect upon the names that the Word of God gives Him. By what names is He called? You and I would be here a long time today to tabulate all those names. I simply would call to your attention a very small subset of them. In John 14, 6, the Lord Himself said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. When you and I give thought then to the basic of life and to the basic of truth, it must begin and end with Him. There is no other. In Isaiah 9, 6, a whole host of descriptive names were given to Him. Among them are these, Wonderful, the Mighty God, Counselor, the Prince of Peace. Now, when Isaiah was charged and commissioned to use words like that, he was detailing one that was to come well over 800 years in the future from his day. And when the Master came... You and I see many verses that echo in our thinking the truth of those names and the fact that they became a reality. Beyond that on that slide, isn't it also true that there was a great deal of lesson in this for those apostles? They had seen the Lord work miracles. They had heard Him teaching on many occasions, but now to see Him in conversation with these two great worthies of the Old Testament and to hear the God of heaven affirm His existence and His identity. Surely that must have left a lasting impression in their minds about this one who was their master, and the one who was commissioning them, and the kingdom that He was certainly to establish. On that slide, I've asked you to note also this. The glorification of the Lord was to be such a momentous thing that God here said, this is my beloved Son. He wasn't talking about Moses or Elijah. The Son of God occupied a rather unique place. Sometimes we encounter that word, the only begotten Son of God. That adjective begotten certainly is a meaningful thing. And as you and I close that slide, doesn't it remind us we are off on a powerful journey as we think about this transfiguration. Let's look at lesson number two. I mentioned earlier about prayer. What more might be said about it in the context of this exercise? Jesus had gone to this location, this mountain, and His purpose for proceeding there was prayer. And then this transfiguration took place. I've invited you to think about the holiness of God. Isn't this a reminder of that holiness? When you and I engage in prayer, it is a time of humility, but it's a time in which we approach and beseech the One who is so great. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. May we never be lulled into the thinking that prayer is some kind of pointless or meaningless or habitual exercise to which there is no, prayer or no power attached. That is far from the biblical narrative. It is far from the consideration of what the Bible teaches. In prayer, we make connection to the one who is powerfully above this entire universe. 
and who is able to do all things consistent with His will. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 19, 26, With God, all things are possible. Now you and I know that that means that those things that are in a part of God's will, it is entirely the case that that can be brought about and it can be brought to fruition. It may not be brought about the time frame you and I prefer. It may not be brought about in the way that we would prefer. But God's will shall be accomplished. Jesus went to this mountain to pray. The next statement on that slide then it would seem to me to be this one. The prayers of the saints are described in Revelation as sweet incense that comes to surround the throne of God. When you and I as children of God pray, it is such that those prayers have presence around the throne of God. I hope we never forget that truth. It's not as if prayer is just a powerful thing that does find its way there. It is in fact described twice in the Revelation as surrounding the throne of God. For that reason, let's close that slide like this. I've invited you to consider there are some times in the Bible when prayer seems to be connected to a time when a greater understanding is desired by someone who is a bit confused, or at least whose understanding is not complete. You and I recall Peter prayed like that in Acts chapters 9 and 10. We remember that there it was about the noonday hour and God brought him an amazing vision. In this scene, it's not that the Lord didn't understand. He knew what was about to happen at Jerusalem. He knew this crucifixion was coming. It was only a few days away. This time of glorification was significant for Him, significant for those apostles. What about lesson three? That third observation. I have placed as an elaboration of a point we made earlier. Would you put yourself again in the position of Peter and James and John who were asleep for at least part of these events? That degree of sleepiness and that degree of behavior at least allows us to reflect upon possibilities like that today. During some of the transfiguration, again, these were asleep. Doesn't it remind us at the very least of what would happen at Gethsemane only a few days into the future? The same three, Peter, James, and John, and they were asleep again. I think all of us would agree sleep is an amazing gift. The ability in the peacefulness of mind to close one's eyes and sleep and to awake refreshed, it really is a blessing. But there's times when... We need to be apprised and aware of spiritual sleep and how dangerous it is and how inappropriate it is. Let's develop that on this slide. Isn't there a great tragedy attached to the Bible to those who are spiritually asleep? That is to say, they are unapprised at a particular point in life of the status of things. May I ask you this way, have you ever been so deep in sleep that maybe some events transpire in one's house and maybe you're unaware of it? I found myself in that situation more than once. Maybe you have too. 
you arise, perhaps you're waked up by your wife or otherwise, and you come to realize certain events transpiring and you were asleep at first. Sometimes it involved danger. Sometimes it involved other events that would have demanded your attention had you been awake. What if we apply that to our spiritual condition? This person perhaps is in spiritual danger and yet they are living aloof to it, spiritually asleep. In so doing, what about then that danger? What about that set of circumstances? Look at that slide with me. Isn't it true the Word of God has some interesting statements to make about this state of affairs? You see that danger as you look near the bottom of that slide. I can think of no set of texts any stronger in discussing this than Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. You remember the steam. There was a man who had a field, and in fact, there was some tares sown in that field. Now, what happened in regard to the tares? The text says the tares were sown while men were sleeping. That's what the text says. They were sown while men were sleeping. And later on, you and I observe what happened in regard to the tares. We appreciate what took place with regard to them being allowed to stay until the time of harvest. And then all was harvested and the tares were assembled and burned and the good seed, of course, were put into the barn. But you'll notice it's while men were sleeping that that terrible thing happened. May I urge each of us to be on guard spiritually. Don't allow others to bring into your life or mind ways of thinking inconsistent with the Word of God. If we allow ourselves to be spiritually in slumber, that's when the devil can make inroads movements, if you will, to bring things into our life that can be exceedingly harmful and even eternally so. We need to be spiritually alert, spiritually vigilant. Didn't the Lord say, watch? And I say unto all to watch in Mark 13, verses 32 and 33. This issue of being spiritually asleep, isn't it true that Jude encouraged us in this way as well? In Jude, verses 3 and 4, we find the author of that book, Jude, encouraging us to be mindful that when evil arrives, it often comes in through the side door or the back door. You see, we might be ready to watch the front door, but we have to be mindful of the others too. Maybe in one final way on that slide. The Bible is filled with warnings for each of us to not be given spiritually to sleep. Romans 13, 11, Ephesians 5, 14, just to name two. Isn't that an encouragement for us to be watchful? As you close that slide with me, notice what Peter, James, and John observed when they were awake. It says they saw His glory. You and I surely would note that they must have been thankful at least they witnessed that. But as we turn our slide to the next one, what about lesson number four? The fourth lesson. There's a word that's used as you read verse number 36 with me about their consideration of these events. It says they kept it close. Specifically, what did Luke mean by that? In what way did they keep it close? Thankfully, there is some description given. Let me develop it like this. That word close means that they were silent with regard to this. 
they did not spread it abroad. Would you be impressed with me? If you had seen an event like this transfiguration, wouldn't you have wanted to share it? Wouldn't you have wanted to tell somebody? Wouldn't you have wanted to make it available to them to let them know what you had been blessed to see? And yet, the text says in verse number 36, when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. They didn't tell anybody. In that light, would you be impressed about two things? First, that as Jesus had given consideration about that, that they did submit. They did follow what the Lord encouraged them. But not only that, doesn't that encourage of us total obedience on our part to do what it is that the Master would say regardless what we might otherwise prefer? And then one final thing would be this one. Later on, we do find Peter. He does share with us some thoughts we read. Turn over with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember, Peter was there. He was an eyewitness of the events of that transfiguration. And yet later in 2 Peter chapter 1, he later would say this. This is no contradiction, of course. That text in Luke 9 said in those days he didn't share it. But later when he wrote the book of 2 Peter, he said this. May I begin reading in verse number 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory, and there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. Later, Peter would refer to this very event and say, We heard Him, that voice from heaven, and we were eyewitnesses of that majesty. You and I serve a risen Savior. That Savior who was a part of that transfiguration event, speaking with Moses and Elijah, you and I have the opportunity to faithfully serve Him and bow before Him and be faithful to Him. As you and I close that slide, why don't we do this? Let's conclude our lesson this way. We have drawn our attention to the transfiguration event. It was a signal time of preparation for the Lord's decease at Jerusalem. This was a time of reaffirmation of who He was, what His journey and mission was, and what He was going to accomplish. Aren't you and I thankful for what He accomplished? He went to the cross and died for us. That death, that blood that He shed, purchased the church, of which you and I, of course, are a part. This very day, if you're not a faithful New Testament Christian, this transfiguration scene, I hope, would stir in your heart the desire that you might become a Christian, that you might become a member of that body for which Christ died. May I say that the plan of salvation requires of you this. Won't you believe in the Lord? Believe that He, in fact, is the one who was a part of this event, who was transfigured. Might we be impressed to know it was the Lord's appearance that was as we described it. Moses and Elijah, they weren't glistering the way Jesus was. 
the Lord is superior to them. For that reason, you and I are told, Hear ye Him. Today, won't you hear the Lord? Believe in Him. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. You know, as you engage in that activity, it is a sweet moment of complete submission to the Lord's demands. But once you become a Christian in that way, live faithfully. That is to say, give each life, each day of your life in commitment to Him. When you stumble, if you find yourself in a habitual way of sin, come back to the Lord. Make confession of those sins and make repentance of them. Today, if we could be of some assistance in either of these ways, or merely to offer prayers of strength and encouragement and wisdom, we'd be honored to do any and all of that. Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement today. If we could be of some assistance at this moment, we'd invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.